You're listening to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. GGTMC listeners, this is Rupert uh, with another bonus interview episode for you out there. Uh, I talked to Lars Nilsson, and he is the senior programmer at the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas. Certainly a mecca of cool film stuff. If you're not aware of the Draft House, you should check out their website. Um, you can follow Lars on Twitter. He's um, at LARS. Alamo, with one word. Um, he has a regular series called Weird Wednesday, which is a really cool series of films, mostly not available on DVD kind of stuff, offbeat stuff, which he talks about a little bit in the interview. Definitely go and look at the the listing for the calendar for Weird Wednesday and, and read his little descriptions of the films. Those are always really cool. Just a quick note, at one point I asked him for like a Holy Grail film that, you know... If he one that he really wants to get, I, I think a print of to show or just to what to have people see, and he gave me some answers in the interview. But then he contacted me later about um, what his true Grail film is. Just so so it's out there. The film's called Road to Selena. It's from 1970. Uh, George's Lautner directed it, and it's got uh, Mimsy Farmer, Robert Walker Jr., Ed Bagley. Senior, and some others. Sounds like a very interesting film, definitely one that I think people should track down, especially if he lists it so highly. So anyway, without further ado, uh, here's the interview. Um, Just kind of cuts right in. Um, But I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Did we we meet when I was in L.A. at all? No, we didn't. Um, Okay, I didn't think so. Yeah, no, my wife and I were at the uh, Surf 2 um, uh, Carnival Magic show, which was fantastic. and we got to hear you and Zach do the intro, but uh, we never got to talk at all. Um, I wish we could have come back for the other two nights. I think you guys did two more nights at the New Bev. We did a total of two nights. So oh, total we did two. one of the nights, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, we ended up watching Julie Darling and Poor Pretty Eddie. Uh, and I have a, a copy of, uh, what was the third one you did? I think it was uh, Psycho from Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I okay. still haven't seen. But anyway. Um, did you like Julie Darling? Oh, dude, that movie was nuts. I love it. That movie was absolutely nuts. I showed it to my wife. I got a bootleg of it. I'm like, you know, these guys, you know, they recommended this thing. It's got to be interesting. And, man, I have not seen one like that. That's one of those ones that you come across every once in a while. And, wow. <laughs> you know? I, re- I really love that movie. I think it's really well done. And I, I don't know. I think I mentioned, you weren't at that screening, but I mentioned that uh, I was in touch with Isabel Mejias, who plays Julie, in a movie <laughs> for months ahead of time. Oh, wow. Trying to get to come out to that screening. And she just, uh, <clears throat> we kind of did a dance back and forth on it. She was at first kind of very flattered that anybody knew about her career, that anybody knew about the, the movie, or that thought she did a good job. And then she was just uh, finally, it got down to it. She was just like, I really don't want my children to know about that movie, kind of. <laughs> And I don't, want to, I don't want to bring attention to the fact, you know, which is it's kind of sad because, you know, she didn't do that many movies, and I think she's really good in it. Oh, she really is. No, I mean, it's definitely one of those movies that's like, I mean, it's a crazy performance, but she does a good job with it. 
I mean, there's yeah. a question. I mean, I don't know too many... To be honest, it's too bad when an actor like that doesn't do in, that many movies because I would love to see her do anything else. Like, I haven't, I haven't tracked down... Is, is there anything else in her career that you sort of... Uh, oh, yeah, like like Meatballs 3 and oh, Scanners 2. <laughs> yeah, she was in, uh, in a movie called uh, Heavy Metal Summer. Oh. Like, she didn't... She didn't really do that many movies, like, but she's good. She's she's good in Scanners too, you know. Okay, uh, I see. I see. That's cool. See, I got to track down Scanners too. I definitely have not seen that. That's great. Well, yeah, like that's the kind of thing where you see a performance like that and you really wish that they had done probably more films than they did. When you end up finding out they didn't do that many. That's yeah, it, but it's also kind of a it's it's kind of a thing where. You know, a lot of the performers that I like a lot are performers who just did a few movies like that. And it's they're kind of stars, you know. And they're kind of like I guess you'd say cult stars in that little way. But we're talking about like a very small cult, like not a not a big cult star like a Warren Oates, like a tiny cult, you know, where like five people know that movie. Yeah, it's know? true. It's but it's definitely one of those things, like you say, it's a cult. Like anybody that sees that movie that's of a certain mindset. I mean, you'll yeah. never forget it, and you'll champion it to every every person that you know that be open to it, which I've done. Uh, yeah, I, I love those kind of. Obviously, you know, I love those kind of movies. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. That's really good stuff. So, this is sort of a basic intro kind of thing. How did you first get involved with the Draft House? Um, I was a patron at the Draft House from the. Well, actually, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, I was working at an all night Kinko's uh, back in '97, I guess. '97. And uh, a guy came in. And he was running up some copies of stuff and running around and going to do the little, getting on the computer and so forth for printing and everything. This was a long time ago. And I thought he had left. And I thought he had left the stack of things that he had brought. And he had brought things like uh, movie press books. Uh, I remember distinctly there was a Superfly soundtrack nice. with a cutout cover. Uh, and there were some, uh, like, like, books about movies. And, of course, it was an interest of mine. So, like, I said, oh, boy. This guy just walked out and left this shit. It's mine now. So <laughs> I picked it up and carried it over, and, and they're like, and then uh, in a few minutes later, Tim Leake walked over to me and who I didn't know then, and said, uh, "Hey, did you see a bunch of books and stuff that I left over here?" And I was like, "Oh shit," because <laughs> I thought I, I was going to put it in Lost and Found, and then you know nobody would claim it by the end of the night, and I would take it home. So uh, that's uh, that's how we met Tim Leake, who at that time was about to open the Alamo Draft House Theater, wow. uh, and so he and I kind of hit it off that night just at Kinko's while I was working there and became friends and subsequently um, I, I started going to the theater he, at that point he was preparing the very first Alamo calendar I believe and that's what he was doing on the computer there uh, subsequently I started going to the theater and of course he and I were friends and became friends and um, I would give advice on movies I would say have you seen this movie have you seen For, I remember one movie I was like uh, I would say you guys should really show Orgy the Dead and Gator Bait and so I brought in like copies of video, you know, copies that I'd made on my two little pathetic little VCRs of <laughs> Orgy of the Dead and Gator Bait, and they watched them, and they're like, we'll see what we can do, and of course there's no print available of Orgy of the Dead, but they did play Gator Bait, they got a Gator Bait poster, they put it in the lobby, um, and they started soliciting my advice a little bit more, oh, or Tim cool. solicited my advice, and so we would talk about movies, and I would make suggestions, and after a while, um, uh, Quentin Tarantino started coming out to the theater, uh, and, and making doing his series, QT Fest, and he did several of those. And Quentin and I would talk about movies quite a lot, and we would have a lot of shared interest about movies. And I heard this. I've never talked to Tim about this, but I heard that 
uh, Tim asked me to come and start programming the series because Quentin had said something like, oh, this guy knows his shit. You should you should work with this guy as a programmer or something. I don't know if that's true or not. That's and and all these years, I've never talked to him about it. Very cool. But uh, that's that's... That's the legend, so maybe we'll print the legend, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's very cool. That's great. Wow, that's really neat. And then, so, did you, how did that, did you start with Weird Wednesday right away, or when did that, how did that develop? And wait, briefly, yeah, well, actually. Well, Tim, Tim, had, Tim had started Weird Wednesday, oh, or it was something, Tim. Something, weird, something Weird Wednesday, uh, but it was, it wasn't, didn't really have a lot of direction, it was just kind of, uh, it needed a it needed a real programmer's imprint, which it didn't have at that point. It was just kind of like, hey, we'll throw something up there, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's the movie that we think it is, maybe it isn't. And it, it, so it was, it was very sort of loose sort of thing. It was free, and it wasn't really publicized, and people would kind of show up. But I came in, and I sort of just started uh, putting my imprint on it, and I started doing my write-ups and all that that I think kind of helped give the series a voice. Yeah. Um, and so all that, that thing just kind of happened more or less organically. I wasn't being paid for it or anything like that. It was just, uh, I did it for years. And, you know, after a while, I eventually became a programmer and then eventually the head programmer at the theater. That's cool. Well, I was going to say... It's been a long ride that we can't get into probably, but it's, well, I, you know, that's how it started. We, we can get into whatever you want. I'd love to I'd love to hear all this stuff, you know I mean? Like, I'm fascinated by it. I've certainly been fans of uh, you and Zach's and Tim's for a long time. I mean, I think I started reading about the Draft House probably a little before Tarantino did his first festival there. Um, but you've been there. I mean, so you've been with them bef- since before that, obviously. Is that uh, right? Well, no. Uh, Tarantino did his first fest before the Alamo started. So oh, okay. he did his first fest at a theater called My Adobe bad. here. But then it, then it soon moved over to the Alamo. Gotcha. So. Okay, I gotcha. My bad. Yeah. No, that's, but, but, but you've been there for a long time, and... Uh, I was going to, sorry, let me just, I got so much going on here. Can you describe, how would you describe Weird Wednesday to people that haven't ever heard of it? Uh, it's, a, it's a midnight series in the middle of the week, which is already kind of a little unusual. Um, it, but it's, I, I'd like to think that we're creating a new way of relating to exploitation films. Um, there, there's been a couple of classical modes of, watching and appreciating exploitation films there's been I think the mode for a long time was they're so bad it's good let's watch it let's make fun of it um, I think that was a mode that really happened for a long time and I'd like to think that we've helped to break out of that mode of that the kind of classic midnight movie mode of oh, oh let's throw rice at the screen and kind of a rocky horror kind of mode I'd like to think that we've um, kind of instilled with people a, a respect for these movies and that um, of course we understand the circumstances of the creation that they're generally made for a small amount of money they were often uh, commercial dicta involved where you would have to have a certain number of scenes of breasts or you have to have a certain number of explosions or all that sort of thing but within those restrictions um, we can look at a lot of these as being very fine films and sometimes they do show films like Lady Terminator or something that are so bad they're good <laughs> It's just a part of the enjoyment of the series. But I do think that there's a, a little more um, uh, respect given to the films. And certainly when I go up and introduce the films, I'm, I'm not saying, look at how bad this is. I'm more often saying, you know, like, with, for instance, we're showing Joe Sarno's Moonlighting Wives tonight. Um, with Joe Sarno, who just passed away, it's going to be a very respectful sort of, and I do respect him a great deal, respectful sort of um, 
I'll spell out what he's done in his career, what, the kinds of movies he's made, why he's so unusual, why his movies are special, why his movies are good. Um, and that's the, that's the way that I'll introduce a Joe Sarno movie, where, I, as I think in this previous mode of midnight movies, that what you might have had with people coming out and saying, this movie is so bad, watch how bad these actresses are. Yeah, some of the actresses are bad, uh, and they don't have polish. But I, I really like, to, I prefer to set up the circumstances like, hey, guess how cheap this movie was? This guy, through force of will, went out and made this huge, plot driven, heavy, like melodrama about these women and about, and the socio historic context of this thing is so dense and deep and fascinating. Like, that's the way I'm going to talk about it, which I think it's, it's just too easy to relate to these films in this condescending sort of way and it's, it's not it, it, I have no interest in doing that and thankfully we've evolved this audience that has no interest in doing that either and uh, it's been a, it's been a really good thing I think for movie going off and I think it's been a great education it's been an education for me to program it and it's been an education for, for people who, who go to this series every week or go to the series as often as they can yeah I, I think I mean I really respect you guys' attitude I mean you really I mean I just in the in the one experience I've had where you guys you and Zach introduced the, the, some movies. I mean, you do feel that reverence and the it's respect. It is a respect, and it's not. I mean, you know, I can't say that there's maybe not a little tongue in cheek occasionally, but but man, it's it's really like this is an event, and you know, you really make fe- people feel lucky to be there and enjoy. I, I, I'd like to think. I'd like to think also we're not droning on in a scholarly way. I, not I, at all. I'm afraid that I'm afraid that I may give that impression. <laughs> we were entertaining, right? Oh, absolutely. That's the thing. Well, I we remember made people laugh. It was it was oh. show business. Yeah, yeah. no. It's. Okay. I mean, that's the thing that I. I really. I like. I'll go and look at the Weird Wednesday calendar whenever you put it out. And, you know, through whatever means necessary, I may try and uh, procure some of those films. And obviously you being um, the type of person you are, you've, you've come up with some pretty obscure stuff. And it's often very difficult to find those films, which is all the better for, you know, the theatrical screenings. But for me, I'm not going to make it out there. So I just want to see the film, you know. And But missing you guys' introductions uh, is really a loss, i got to say. It bums me out, you know. It's not the full experience. There's, there's one other thing I'd like to say about the series, which I, did, I didn't note, and it's one of the things I like the best about it, which is that um, it's not a bunch of film scholars who come out to these series. You know, there are people who, who have this, uh, uh, who ha- who are like you, I think, who are people who really appreciate what you're saying and who understand it. But there's also like a, a large number of like college students who just kind of go out because they're fun movies. Yeah. They're like homeless people, you know? There's like bums, there's psychopaths. It's in a way that it's kind of a classic tradition, you know, it is a lot, it's a lot like you would have seen, like the, like the audience that you would have seen in Times Square when these movies, many of these movies would have had their first play. Um, that there's a kind of aspect of the classes coming together, uh, a sort of small D democratic uh, feeling in the room uh, as we enjoy these movies. And I like that quite a lot too. Yeah, no, that's, that's that's a big part of the lifeblood of the series for me. That's really cool. See, that's where I gotta just I gotta get down there and and experience a few of these uh, in in your on your home turf, you know, in the setting that it's you know more or less meant to be seen. It's great when you guys travel out to the New Bev, or I know you hit San Francisco too, um, but but the Draft House. I mean, and, and there's various locations of the Draft House, as as far as I understand. Is that right? Yeah, we, we do we do these movies at the Ritz. The Ritz, the, the okay. Downtown. Gotcha. Yeah. See, that's where I really need to experience it. And and I, you know, I we definitely have a great uh, community of 
uh, programmers out here, you know, um, Phil at the uh, at the New Beverly and Hadrian at CineFamily are both great, and I think share your mindset. I, I think I think those guys are I think those guys are brilliant. Yeah. they really are. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and talk to. I don't know if Phil will do an interview, but but I'm going to try and talk to Hadrian at some point, um, just because I've I've been a fan of his since Cinephile Video started. Uh, you know, way back when I first moved out to LA, and 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 they do some great stuff there. That's. That's the closest thing to the draft house we have, and it's it's pretty good stuff. I mean, it's all tricky for me because I actually live sort of outside the city, but um, but man, it's just so neat to see uh, people come together and watch these films, like the kind of films that you program and that they program. Uh, I just love seeing them get the respect. You know, it's it's really, I don't know, I, I really appreciate your attitude towards the whole process. It's pretty neat, and I, I feel like influential. I mean, I don't know if you. You feel that or not, but I mean, in, in the circles that I run with, I feel like uh, a lot of people, there is a reverence for uh, the kind of programming that you guys do, and uh, I certainly, I mean, I've seen a lot of movies, but I'm always on the lookout for something new and interesting, and you guys are, are like touchstones for me as far as, well, what are, what are they into now? What have they, you know, what have they dug up, and wh- what are they going to show? Uh, that stuff is fascinating to me, and ever fascinating, I mean. Well, we're, I, just, we're just passing it on, you know, it's... it's <laughs> And because, you know, we, when before we programmed, there were people like that who we looked at, maybe not programmers as much, but I know I would look at, you know, psychotronic video, well, yeah, shock I was, cinema, yeah, and I, I, would look at, like, I would look at the things that those guys were into, and it was, I would just, I, I would just fill up with it, you know, I would be just so, I've got to see that, I've got to see that, I would get the new psychotronic, and I would look through it, and I would go through with my pen or whatever, and I would write it down, and I would go to the video stores, and I would look through the alternate titles and all that kind of stuff, and, and yeah, so, like, I think we're just passing it on, and, you know, eventually somebody else will pick up the torch, and I, I think that's, it's an honor to be part of that chain, and, and thank you for the kind words. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to say, like, how... Okay, so so obviously you're a fan of um, Michael J. Weldon's work and and stuff like that. How do you find at this at this stage of the game? How do you find these films? I, I, I don't quite understand. You, I'm sorry. How I do mean, we, like, you, how you do know, you know about this? Yeah. Or? How do you how do you come across new stuff? Like we we've all sort of gone over the Psychotronic Guide, and obviously that's a great resource. But I mean, you I've seen the stuff you dig out, and I'm I've just I, I mean I, I don't mean to be egotistical at all, but I I've heard of a lot of movies and and nine times out of ten i'll look at your schedule and i'd say three quarters of it is films i've never ever heard of and so i'm just wondering like what resources do you go to or what do you have access to well i I don't think there's any substitute in this world for obsession obsession is the most powerful (laughs) force of of i mean it's if you are able to do for a living, the thing that you're obsessed with, you're going to excel. Yeah. Um, so uh, obsession is the key, really. And if if there's another thing I think that really um, sets us apart, and I, I hope there, I hope we are set apart, and you, you're telling me that we are, and I'm happy for that, is that uh, we don't rely on the internet. Yeah. We read books, yeah. and for me, that's if if I have a secret weapon, it's the fact that I. Open books. I read the pages of books. <laughs> I, I read magazines. You know, I read old magazines. I read old newspapers. You know, I I, uh, I read things that aren't on the internet. The internet is a fairly fairly small peephole onto the large amount of information that exists out there. So um, yeah, if I do know a lot, it is because I read widely, and I'm so obsessed that I find myself reading widely in this subject. Um, so hey, I'm, I'm not sure. It's it's a mystery to me that 
probably a, a probably a watch that I don't want to um, dissect. It's probably a watch I don't want to dissemble, you know. Uh, but it seems to work for me. No, that's great. Uh, I mean, one of the questions I had was, do you have a favorite film reference book? And I'm guessing there must be many for you, as far as that goes. I have a lot of favorite film reference books. Uh, if there's a film reference book that I look at on my shelf and I think, oh, I, I got to get another copy of that because it's it's destroyed, it's it's fallen apart because I've referred to it so much. Uh, if there's and if there's a film reference book that I can just open up to like the page where I need to be because my fingers know it by this sort of native memory, it is. And this might surprise you, but it's uh, Phil Hardy's Overlook Encyclopedia Film Horror Movie Edition. Ooh. Do you have the Phil Hardy Overlook Encyclopedia? I, I don't have it, but I will very soon. I guarantee it. There's a Phil Hardy uh, horror. There's the one that's the horror one. There's the sci-fi one. There's the Western one. Uh, there's the gangster film one. There are these big uh, encyclopedias. The ones I refer to is most of the horror one. I've also referred to the others quite frequently, but the horror one is just completely falling apart on my shelf. <laughs> it, it looks so bad. It looks like it's been through a hurricane. Nice. But uh, that's... And, and I honestly haven't cracked it that recently, but probably, you know, 10, 12 years ago or whatever, that's, I tore that book apart. Nice. Also, I've torn apart many copies of the original Psychotronic Encyclopedia, um, the first one, I've, I've, of both of them, but I, but I really destroyed the first Psychotronic book. <laughs> it's a great book, on man. On a couple of occasions. Yeah, I have. Uh, also, uh, P. Toombs, uh, Immoral Tales was a big one for me. Uh, and P. Toombs, uh, Mondo Macabro, also a big one for me. Excellent. Immortal Tales may be a little bit bigger for me because I, I happen to really love uh, European sex and horror films. So that that book I really uh, ingested and learned every word of, and it became my uh, program for learning about movies for a long time. Wow. i got to check those out. This is all great information for me. This is These interviews are in part, or, uh, you know, just an opportunity for me to pick the brains of people that I respect and, and this is great information thank you so much for this um, what do you of think of uh, Danny Perry are you a fan of his work at all or not yeah I've read all, I've read all the cult movies books uh, I, I like those quite a lot um, yeah those are right up my alley those cult movies books and I, I love the fact that uh, the, the choice of the movies is so unusual so they're very well written uh, yeah, I like those books a lot. That's cool. That's cool. Um, let me let me just dive into a couple more questions. Um, like, you guys did uh, now. How did you and Tim and Zach get involved with? I guess it's Synapse that did the Forty Second Street Forever. I think Volume Five, The Draft House. How did you guys get hooked up with that? How did that start? I think our friend Matt Kiernan put us in touch with him. It's it's kind of a lot of water under the bridge. I don't remember exactly. No, that's cool. I mean, it, so did you guys just go ahead and start digging through uh, the collection of trailers that you had at your disposal? Yeah, it was, it, was a nice, it was kind of a nice, fun project for us to be able to go and have some trailer thons where we would just run them and we would take, and we'd have just free screenings of a bunch of trailers and we'd air them out. We knew most of what our trailers were, but, you know, there'd be a few where it's like, what was that again? So we would, we would uh, run them and then we'd film them off the screen and then put together a draft of it. Um, I'm in the process of doing uh, volume two of that right now, oh, actually, fantastic. with those guys. Fantastic. Yeah. Are you guys going to do another commentary like you did on the first one? If they want us to. I don't know. Like I, There's like mixed results on the commentary. Like Some people said, oh, you should have those other guys you know, who would be with the other one. So I don't know. What, what that, other, that's going to be up to Don and Jerry, what, the what, guys. I guess I haven't listened. To, you know, yours is the only commentary I've listened to. I didn't even realize the other... 42nd Streets had commentaries, but I thought you guys' commentary was highly entertaining. So 
I Apparently, hope... the other commentaries are by guys who know a lot more about these movies than we do, which I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I've never heard of them. Yeah, I don't see, do a lot of commentaries, honestly. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I think entertainment value is is certainly key in, in something like that. We were pretty. I'm not sure if this came across. We were pretty freewheeling on that. We just kind of like came in and sat down and did it. Yeah, it definitely it, it has that feeling. But I I was I was thoroughly entertained by it. Especially I remember. Your comments on uh, Slaughterhouse Rock were, were pretty funny, if I recall. Um, it was Zach's comments, yeah, yeah. Okay, Zach, sorry, that's right. Um, well, that's cool. I mean, that's really neat. So do you have any idea when that Volume 2 might uh, come to fruition? Uh, working on it right now, kind of hammering out some of the details on it. Uh, literally, I have an email from Jerry sitting in my inbox right now. and I'm going to address when I get back to the office. Very cool, very cool. I'll be looking forward to that. I'll purchase that on the day it comes out. That's great stuff. Um, uh, what was okay? Well, I guess I can just dive into the. I sent you a list of questions. I'll just dive into those. Um, what uh, um, What are some of your earliest genre film memories? Uh, well, I was uh, I was born in seventy one, so it was kind of a cool era for having television, particularly for having cable. Uh, during that time, it was. The cable was a little bit more wide open then, and a little bit more of a wild west, I think. So uh, you had the, the programming on cable, and, and even on broadcast TV was was different, and it wasn't as uh, rigid as it is now, I think. Yeah, so I miss that. I remember, I, I, I do remember watching um, late at night. I, it must have been. I remember Square Pegs was still on, so it must have been <laughs> like '83 or so. Uh, uh, a Hammer movie came on TV, and I remember that Hammer, it was one of the Hammer Dracula movies, I think it was Dracula, Prince of Darkness, but I don't really remember. It may have been Has Risen from the Grave, but I do remember that the combination of kind of the color, the bright color, the horror elements of it that were kind of very over-the-top and just big horror elements. It wasn't just suggestive. It was really, uh, it was really big horror elements. And the beautiful cleavage, uh, <laughs> like the, the, the sex appeal, of the women, like even today, like if I hear like a beautiful woman with a British accent, I'm just sunk. <laughs> and I think it has to do with I think it has to do with that. But um, yeah, like there was a combination of sex appeal and horror in that Hammer movie that I saw that really kind of stoned me. Um, and then I also had a book, a kids' book called Monsters of the Movies that I liked. And I hadn't seen most of the movies that were referenced. It was just like the classic canon of, you know, universal horror movies and yeah. plus Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, plus all the all the usual stuff. And I hadn't seen most of those movies. I had an opportunity to see most of those movies because it was kind of pre-VCR for me anyway. But, like, there would be stills in there. And I would just stare at that, you know, that island of Dr. Moreau still or that island of Lost Souls still or that uh, The Mummy still. And... I would imagine what the movie was like in my mind. And, of course, in your mind, what you're imagining is far more akin to a dream. It doesn't have, like, all the boring little exposition parts and so <laughs> forth. Like, what you're imagining is just, like, the most amazing movie in the world when you see, like, that picture of Boris Karloff wrapped up as the mummy. It's like you can't believe how good that movie is. And, you know, eventually you see the movies and possibly you're a little disappointed. And, you know, as life goes on, you learn to appreciate them for more things. But in my mind, it... It was just as if there was this whole world of unbelievably great movies uh, that were out there that, that these photographs in that book suggested. And then um, just 
going on, they were uh, just obviously on television. It was far more a television thing than a movie thing, than a theater thing. But there was a killer theater, came on late at night, and this was all around the same time. And I remember watching a movie that I didn't know what the hell it was. It had a big, you know, many people will see movies in their childhood, and they don't know what it is. And then later on, they see it. I get a lot of emails from people, actually, who are like, I saw this movie in my childhood, and I don't remember what it was. Can you tell me what it was? Um, and they'll remember just some one little tiny thing. But I did have an experience a few years ago where there was a movie that came on Chiller Theater, and it wasn't even a horror movie. It was a gangster movie. And I didn't remember, I didn't really know what it was, but it made a big impression on me because it started off with, like, these guys being lined up and mowed down at the beginning. And then there was a scene where, like, a guy, where these guys get horrifically dunked in this vat of acid. And I just remembered it. And it was so vivid to me. And later on, I saw it was, I saw a, it was The Mean Machine with Chris Mitchum and Barbara Boucher. Oh. And I saw it later, and I was just like, whoa, this is that movie that I saw when I was a kid. Nice. And it made such an impression. And, and that was on Chiller Theater because it had been retitled uh, Cauldron of Blood, I believe was the name of it. Wow. Or Cauldron of Death. Yeah, Cauldron of Death, I think. And so that had been on Chiller Theater as a horror movie. And I also remember there was another one called Will Steve's Red Eye Cinema that was on Channel 12. And that was just some guy who was like an engineer at the station or whatever, and it was a small-town TV station. I remember he showed Plan 9 from Outer Space, which had a, a big impression. And that would have been 82, 83, probably. Uh, and then we finally got a VCR in probably 84, 85 for my family, and there was a little video store. And I remember going in there and, and looking at the horror movie section. I remember in that video store, there was a Dolomite standee. <laughs> It was oh. a Rudy Ray Moore Dolomite standee with all the little VHS tapes of Dolomite on that, like on that standee. That was a really weird thing. I can't, like, and that was a, like '84, so that was pre-hipster Dolomite. That was, that was the lumpen proletariat experiencing Dolomite in its real element. So, uh, and I also remember getting Corpse Grinders in that video store and Horror Express, which also had a big impression on me. I, I loved and still love Horror Express. I think Horror Express is great. No, I agree with you. And actually, uh, Severin's putting that out, by the way. Oh, excellent! Because that, that image put that out at one point, but but that's great that they're going to do a new disc. It's, it's been public domain, so it's been out on a lot of different shitty little DVD releases. But you know, Severin's really going to do it right. Yeah, that's what I want to show to my, my son. I have a, an eleven-year-old, and uh, he's seen all kinds of stuff. But that's one I've been sort of waiting for a good edition of because it's definitely that kind of movie. I mean, it's a great film that I, I still don't feel like people talk about as much as they should, considering the cast. You know, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, and it, there's just something about it. There's a kind of magic to that movie that's, it goes, the cast helps, but there's something about that movie, about Horror Express, that is just so, it's it's hard to explain. I, I know that I saw it as a child, so it sticks with me, but I've shown it to other people. I showed it at Weird Wednesday, and other people liked it in much the same way, who didn't even see it as a child, so. That's cool. Well, how much do you think, this is something I wrestle with a lot, like, how much does nostalgia sort of affect your viewpoint on a film and does it ruin films or does it help them what, what do you think its place is as far as this goes I don't know that it ever ruins films for me Yeah, I think sometimes it might enhance them for me um, I have nostalgia for times I don't even remember though you know <laughs> like I don't remember the early 70s very well I was very young but I can uh, I do feel like a sort of nostalgia for like 1972 1973 which I, I can't possibly remember
have women around me like that are like that. <laughs> you know, I just ache for it. No, you. I mean, there's a lot of things. I totally know what you're talking about. I mean, I was born in 74 myself, but there's something about, and maybe as we get more and more technologically advanced with our gadgets and what have you, that I feel like when I go back, you know, you've sort of, at least in my mind, I've assembled, I mean, uh, what that era was like through pieces of, of movies and my own experience and it was it, it, it's a it's a cliched thing to say, but it was just such a simpler time, and there's something really alluring about it at this point. Uh, you know, I feel I really miss it too. Yeah, and it wasn't a good time. Uh, like if you if you talk to people who were really around during that era, you know, I've talked to many people, and they were like, oh, it wasn't so great. What are you talking about? And, and like people I trust, you know, and and so yeah, it's it's a fantasy. It's a shared fantasy that we all have about about that time, and I, I suppose we all have our good old days. <laughs> uh, and it's particularly, it's particularly easier for us to make that our good old days because we didn't really have to experience it. But, oh, right. you know, it, it's, these are all constructs of mind, constructs of fantasy, and it's it's okay. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> good to have. No, I agree. I agree, absolutely. Um, well, this, is, this next question I have, I mean, I don't know how you even answer this one, but um, it's, it's just talking about, and I don't know how important... DVD releases are to you, except that I guess it allows for more people to see these films that uh, you enjoy so much. But like, is there certain films that you really wish were on DVD? Favorites that aren't aren't out yet, or maybe never will come out? Well, I'm going to do a terrible thing here, which is I'm I'm not going to answer your question, but I'm going to speak on it. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so I don't really I don't really get all that exercised about stuff being on DVD or not. That's I, what I'm wondering. Myself, Sometimes I find the opposite thing is true, that a movie will come out on DVD and it will be a movie that I had tracked down through a trading network or found through some bootlegger, you know, that it's a movie that I really tracked down and had a hard time finding. And then just any fucking jackass, you know, can fucking walk into Amoeba and buy it. And it bugs the shit out of me sometimes. Like, I, I don't, like, it. I, I spent so much time trying to find, like, I wish I could think of a great example, um... Yeah, you know, like years ago, like barbed wire dolls or something. Anybody can just walk in and buy it. And so for me, sometimes it works in the opposite direction. Yeah. That I'm upset that people haven't earned it or are able to see these movies, that they're just able to walk in and get it. Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, it's obviously DVD looks better than VHS. Particularly a lot of times I'd, I'd have like second or third generation VHS on a movie. And it's, it's nice to be able to see it, but... Um, it's not a. It's not something I get really all that exercised about. I can find most movies that I'm interested in finding, just you know through bootleggers or trade or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean I totally get what you're saying. Actually, I mean as much as I'm, I'm just sort of an obsessive movie collector. So if now a good version of a movie that was obscure is out, I'm going to pick it up. But I totally hear what you're saying as far as people not earning it. I remember when I was at. I worked at some video stores for high school on through college and at one point a friend of mine and I were really jazzed about uh, the movie Midnight Madness which at the yeah. time was only on like I'm sure you remember the big clamshell VHS yeah, right, right. and it was a pain in the ass we called probably 10 video stores in Madison, Wisconsin which is where I'm from and we finally found a place that had one and we rented it and we were like for me my sisters had rented it in the early 80s over and over again so it had burned on in my mind but I hadn't talked about it or thought of it in, you know, a decade. And suddenly it was like this mission that we were on. And that's, to me, it's funny because um, that's still a favorite of mine. I, I still love that movie. Um, oh, yeah, it's good. You know, it's it's too bad, though, that, that that exact thing that you're talking about, that 
the fact that I earned finding it at that time really made an impact. And uh, it's too bad that, well, twofold. One, it's too bad that uh, people are being cheated out of that experience. And two, I feel like, I, I don't know how much, and I sort of, J Josh Olson sort of touched on this, this idea of like, what does it mean now that everybody has access to this stuff? Does it mean that it's going to get overlooked anyway? It's just kind of it's kind of sad to me that you know, like, yes, it is available, but are people interested nonetheless? I I don't know, you know. Yeah, it, it's a it's an immature thing. It's it's me indulging in kind of immature, you know, part of of my own taste, and I, I shouldn't I shouldn't indulge it. I should be happy that stuff's out, but it does happen that I feel that way, and obviously we both feel that way. No, I, t I totally understand that. That's, I mean, I, I guess there's an immaturity to it, but I, I completely um, have that same thing. Obviously, I don't um, sort of discover and champion as many films as you do, but there are definitely films I've come across on my own through a book or whatever and turned other people onto um, through whatever obscure copy I had of it that then came out on DVD and then everybody talks about it or at least more people can see it and it does i don't know i'm just i'm always sort of struggling with this idea of access that we have now and how everything's moving towards this digital place and how i, I don't know how i feel about that i i kind of don't really like it but it feels like it's sort of an unstoppable force at this point yeah uh we're not gonna be able to do anything about it you know but it's, it's we are reaping the benefits as well you know that's a good point that's a good point um so is there any like uh along the lines of that first question you, which I know you didn't answer, but is okay. Maybe this is a stupid one to even ask. But are there are there films that you've been trying to track down forever that you have not been able to track down? Don't screen are not on anything. Uh, is there a grail for you of any kind? Um, well, there there are movies like that, and there are some that have popped up. And um, I would say right now, I, I I always scan lists or I look through archives or uh, like if people are selling prints, I'm looking through those. Um, and, and there are a lot of things, far more than I could ever kind of list. Yeah. But I think if I if I like found a print of uh, Frederick Hobbs Alabama's Ghost, I would be <laughs> pretty excited about that. That's um, cool. Uh, if I were to ever find a print, I don't even know if a print exists of Hidan of Mokbang Jiao, I would be pretty excited. Um, I don't know if you know that movie. It's also called uh, Invasion of the Girl Snatchers. No, I don't. But, I don't even know if a print exists of that, but that's another movie that's it's just a small movie that I would be really super excited about finding. Um, uh, a movie that's not that... One, one movie that was my holy grail for a long time, this is kind of an odd movie to have been my holy grail, but it was the one I was really looking for the most, uh, was uh, Joy House, Renee Clement's Joy House, uh, the French movie, with uh, Alain Delon, Jane Fonda, Lola Albright. Oh, yeah, I think I've seen that. movie. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's so good. Uh, and, and that was like my number one for a long time. I can't really explain why. It's just a great movie, and I knew that if I played it for an audience, it would really work. And eventually I did find a 16 of it. We played it for an audience, and it really worked. <laughs> um, uh, but along the same lines, Diabolically Yours is a movie that I would love to find a, a English subtitled film print of and, and play it. Um, that's, that's another French movie that Alain Delon. Oh, it's an Alain Delon movie? I don't, I'm not familiar with that one. What is that film? Yeah, so Julien Duvivier film. It's probably from 70, maybe. It's awfully good. Santa Berger, 
uh, Alain Delon, beautiful movie. It's on DVD. It's not, okay. it's not like a hard-to-find movie, but I would love to find a, a subtitle print of it. Gotcha. Another movie that I would love to play, and it would also have to be a subtitle print, which would never exist, is uh, Jess Franco's uh, El Sexo Estro Loco, Sex is Crazy. Uh, that's, that might be my favorite Jess Franco movie, uh, but that, that's one that I would also love to find and play. Cool. Wow, another one I haven't seen, so this is great. This is all good for me. Uh, but, um, okay, let me just run through... Um, your favorite Hollywood legend, and I think you read my example in my question. But do you have one like that? That's a that's a tough one. Um, I do. I have favorite Hollywood legend makers, I suppose. I, <laughs> I really I like the uh, I like the sort of fabulous ideas, the fabulous storytelling, and the fabulous recountings of uh, Howard Hawks and Orson Welles. I think those guys made a lot of shit up, you know, when you, when, you would t- when you would read interviews, like, about, how did this happen? It seems like, particularly, those guys are obviously such great storytellers and story makers. Uh, if you read enough of their interviews, you kind of start getting the impression, just from the way things would sort of shift around, that they, that they had made some of that stuff up, Hawks in particular. I know that he would tell, like, the story, the legend of how Lauren Bacall came out to Hollywood and how... She came out, and it was this beautiful girl. This tall, beautiful, slender girl came in and had this high, squeaky voice so that he got her to go out to the Hollywood Bowl and uh, and read out, read as loud as she could uh, over and over and over and over again. And that eventually, gosh, was it, was it Bogart? It was somebody who lived near the Hollywood Hills. Gosh, it may have been, I don't remember who it was. It was somebody who lived near the Hollywood Bowl, uh, said, that was you. God damn it! I got so sick of hearing you <laughs> yelling. So like, like that's a, that's a typical hog story. Probably completely untrue. Yeah. And then like the Wells story about how he, uh, uh, it was either Lady from Shanghai or Touch of Evil. Maybe you would know where he, was, he had uh, lost all his money. He was on the phone with the producer, and he happened to look over. No, it was uh, Lady from Shanghai. He's on the phone with Harry Cohn, and he happened to look over at the at the. Uh, uh, book stand in the drugstore where he was using the phone and he saw a paperback called Lady from Shanghai and so he just kind of bullshitted right off the top of his head. I got this great property, Lady from Shanghai. <laughs> yeah, and then that's how that happened. I, I suspect that's also total bullshit. Yeah. Uh, but I love those guys' stories and whether they're made up or not, you know, it's, it's, it's truth. You know, it's an agglomeration of non-facts that make the truth. <laughs> I like that. That's a really great, well put, well put. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. I mean, in, in those two in particular, I would have to agree. In the, in the recountings I've come across, uh, there's just, just too much parallel with the kind of storytelling they do in, in real life, in, in their films. That but for it to be true, right? Yeah, yeah it's just, you're totally right. You're totally right. But I'm never, I never really would want to know, wouldn't want to have that kind of thing debunked, you know? But you, it's just neat to think about the fact that it's probably bullshit. You know? That's cool. Um, if there's any, uh, if you could have lunch with any actor or director that's no longer with us, do you have any shortlisted folks? It would be so. It would be so impossible. That's that's just so impossible. <laughs> I know, you know it's it a really shitty is. question. It's a shitty question. Like, how, but... can, how could you choose between? Like, let's say that you have in front of you, you have Klaus Kinski and Greta Garbo and John Ford. How could you choose one? You know, 
Yeah, that's. I'm just thinking, like, what if they're, you know, like, in some whatever place, they're in a cafe t- together, all at different separate tables, and you could go and sit at any one of those tables. You know, somehow they existed in the same timeline, you know, in this universe. Yeah, that'd be impossible. I totally agree. It's a I, 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 I lack the imagination and the imaginary resolve to be able to even... <laughs> come up with that, you know, just to even be able to narrow that down. That's fine. That's totally fine. This, this, I think this question will go down as one that'll just be irritating to people, but that's fine. <laughs> I like to hear people's you know, ruminations on it, even if it's irritating. Um, uh, what's your favorite Charles Bronson movie? Uh, that's another tough one. Um, I mean, The Death Wish is really good. And, I mean, Once Upon a Time in the West, I guess you call it a Charles Bronson movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, anything with him in it, honestly. I don't mean it as, like, he's the driving force. Just anything he's in, as far as my definition goes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, probably like Once Upon a Time in the West. But as far as, like, his Bronson-ness, uh, I, I really like some of the Italian uh, movies, like, particularly, I think, I think Sergio Salima is, a, is an underrated filmmaker and his Violent City with Bronson. Yeah, movies. I was just thinking that. Yeah, that's is cool. a is a really really strong uh, Bronson Bronson role. I, I love Bronson in that. It's kind of a that movie's kind of an out of the past, isn't it? Is, yeah, is it totally recall? is. It absolutely is. Yeah. It's got a kick ass ending. I mean, it's a it's yeah. a good fucking movie. There's no question. That that's a great call. That's a good one. See, that's the kind of thing I was kind of hoping people. I, I, when I pr- first wrote that question, I didn't think about the fact that yeah, Once Upon a Time in the West is going to be one that people will really like, but. I was hoping, you know, I should maybe say what's, you know, a, a, a more obscure Bronson movie that you like. And that's a great example of something that I, you know, totally dig. That's great. Um, and this is one I, I also like. I like, I like Latin on the Rain, too, a lot. I think it's kind of a complex role that he plays. Which one? I'm sorry, like, what? Uh, Rene Clement's Rider on the Rain. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen that one? I mean, it's, it's kind of a complex role that he plays. He's, he has to kind of juggle between uh, being this brute and, and also being this professional who's, who's trying to get this information. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a tough, it's a tough role, and I think it, he does a good job in it. Yeah, that's a good one. That's another great pick. Very cool. Um, I added for you that I'm curious about your, your favorite well, again, favorite is, i got to reword these questions, but, you know, a, a Henry Silva film that you find very interesting. How about that? Uh, okay. Um, I, I like uh, La Mala Ordina, uh, Hard to Kill. Uh, let, me, let me wait for this siren to pass. Jesus, what's going on? Um, I, uh, La Mala Ordina, I don't know if you've ever seen Hard to Kill, also known as the Italian Connection. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it also known as, um, what's the other... No, Italian Connection. Yeah, that's part of... Um, Black Kingpin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that, that's DeLeo's uh, Milieu trilogy, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, I, I like him a lot in that. He's, he's kind of a supporting role, really. But, Wait, that's, uh, him and, sorry, that's him and Woody Strode, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That movie is fantastic. They've actually talked about... They're big, uh, like I said, Eurocrime fans on the show, and they've talked about the Milieu trilogy was one show that they covered, and, and that I think that might be my... Fa- the, the, the chase scene... With um, fuck, I'm forgetting yeah. the, the lead actor's name. Uh, Mar- Mario Ador. Yes, who they love on the GGTMC. Uh, that oh, is too. one of the best chase scenes I've ever seen in a movie. It's so good. Yeah, it's it's really it's really sweaty and intense. Yeah. No. Mario Ador is great in that movie. Another silver movie that I like a lot is um, and this is really obscure. It's called The Animals, also known as uh, Five Savage Men. Ooh. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No, I have not. Uh, the Western, where Henry Silva has no lines, plays like this Indian 
who, who doesn't speak any English, and he helps. Uh, Michelle Carey is in it, who, who plays like this woman who gets raped by Keenan Wynn and his group of bad guys, and uh, like he finds her like naked and bleeding in the forest, and Silva nurses her back to health, and they kind of fall in love, and he teaches her how to fight back against the white man. Ah. And Henry Silva is really funny. It's, it's one of those movies, and there's a lot of those Henry Silva movies where he just kind of doesn't give a fuck, you know? <laughs> yes. And, it's, and, you know, you don't know if, like, like maybe he just kind of looked at the script and said, okay, whatever, this is one of those movies where I do this. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you, you can't really tell. Like like in Chain Heat, he kind of does that. Uh, if you've seen his, his role in Chain Heat, yes. it's just so funny. He's such a funny, charming guy. Uh, that, that when that really comes across, he can be so good. And it's kind of like that. I mean, it's a serious, grim movie. It's not especially well made. Uh, but it's his personality really comes through in that role, even though it's kind of a, a harsh kind of role. His personality really comes through. So, yeah, those are some of the Silva movies I like. Now, that's a really great thing that you bring up, this idea of these, these character actors that just did so many movies that they could look at a script and go, oh, it's one of those. Like, I was just thinking, I was yeah. listening to another podcast where they were talking about uh, the movie Shockwaves, the uh, Nazi, and there's and John Carradine's in that, and and I guess one of the guys in the podcast was listening to Ken. I think Ken Wiederhorn directed it, and he was talking in the in yep. the commentary about how I think he was trying to give John Carradine direction on something, and, and Carradine was more just, more or less just like. He didn't tell him to fuck off, but it was just like, dude, I know this role. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to be the cranky guy or whatever. And, and you know, of course he does it great because he's Carradine and, he, you know, he has his own stock. But just, I'm just, to me, it just, it's a really interesting thing to think about these character actors that did so many roles that they literally could slip in and out of, like, maybe, you know, a dozen to 20 different personality types. You know, and just kind of go, well, oh, it's... Also think, also think about, like, when they would evaluate a script and they would look at a script, they would say, hmm... This needs a little bit more of this to make it a better show. <laughs> so, like a lot of us, I think a lot of the times when you see that happen, they'd be like, "This movie's not going to succeed necessarily on its own merits. I need to do my part to make this a better show. That's why they're hiring me." Yeah, you're right. And, and I, I, I do think that that's a big part of it. You know, it's not so much they're saying, "Hey, I'm going to shit on this movie." They're saying, "Hey, I'm going to make this movie better by." injecting this little element of personality into it by injecting uh, a little bit of extra into the character that maybe isn't in the writing. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And that's one of the great things about character actors is that flavor that they bring to a movie. I mean, it cannot be under understated or underestimated. I mean, it really makes such a difference. Yeah, I, I'm, so, uh, I'm so worried about becoming a crank and about becoming... Um, I've talked about the good old days, but that is one thing that I do worry about is is a lack of, well, a lack of stage training in general and also a lack of, of good stage trained character actors yeah. who, who can do that kind of thing. And, you know, there's still some great faces, you know, um, but for those actors who are just a total pro who come in for like a, you know, like a one day part or whatever and who are able to, you know, to come in and be Elisha Cook Jr. or something yeah. or able to go to be John Carradine or something. And like guys who are just total pros come in and just make it a better show. Yeah. I, I worry about that, uh, that lack of those actors and the, and the supply line being clogged. <laughs> we don't, we don't have a great supply line for those kind of people. Anymore, no, you're totally right. I mean, it's really sad because you were talking about how some of the great faces are left, but the faces are starting to go. I'm thinking of a guy like Jackie Lamb or something. You know, like the faces are starting to go away, and it's it's becoming this homogenized. Uh, I mean, again, it's an obvious statement, but homogenized sort of everybody looks good kind of thing, and and that's just really 
uh, a terrible thing for movies because you know those faces are so important and and you go back and you watch a movie and you're just like man that guy doesn't have to say a single thing uh, but they're bringing something to this movie just by being there with that face you know I mean I'm in... you, you know, it, and it's not just the faces it's the voices and, yes. and the oh. technique um, but like I, I know I love 70s TV like uh, I love Rockford Files I love Columbo I love Police Woman I love all those shows yeah. and a big reason for that is just a caliber of guest stars they can have on those yeah. shows. Just unbelievable. And you'd have just, like, Columbo especially. The Columbo would always have, like, the big guests. Like, and I was watching one the other day, and it was, like, Vera Miles, who, and, like, uh, Martin Sheen was on it. But, like, you know, you don't think of Vera Miles as being, oh, good, Vera Miles in this movie. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, you don't really think that. But when you watch Vera Miles going out there, she was a fucking pro, man. Oh, yeah. Vera Miles goes in there, and she kicks down the door. She's so good. And it's just, and it's not, and she's not, you know, she's not like a top-level star. But she was such a pro that, like, you're watching it, and she's making that, she's, she's selling those lines. She's making it work, man. She looks great. And, like, like that's the kind of thing, just that kind of professionalism. Yeah. It's like, that's the kind of thing that I sort of rue losing, you know? Yeah, I'm totally with you, man. I mean, it, it there was such a great, uh, you know, difference of, gradients of actors where you you just could go all the way up the chain and you had like you said that professionalism at whatever level um and i think it, maybe it's a product of you know the old hollywood system which then grinds down into something else but still we're still getting actors like you were saying maybe the avenues through which we we get actors into films is sort of changing and but it does feel like it's just starting to dwindle down and uh I'm, stage man stage yeah, exactly like so much right. of it is the loss of stage yeah yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's a similar parallel to me with um, with printed, um, you know, magazines and, 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 and things like that, how that's sort of going away. And not that the internet has necessarily affected stage stuff, but um, but yeah, like that sort of thing doesn't seem as important anymore. And that's really sad because then less great actors are drawn to it and then less great actors come out of it into movies. It's it's this evolutionary uh, or de-evolutionary process that's kind of sad to just watch. And I try, I try not to think about it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's there, there are other good things. I think certain aspects of technology are good. And, uh, you know, it's getting it's possibly going to get cheaper to make movies. So there are good things about it. But, yeah, there, there are things that we're losing that we're just probably not going to gain again. Yeah, that's really sad. It's like thinking about a renewable resource that you've just driven into the ground, or non-renewable, that you've driven into the ground and it's gone forever, or, or a species that is now extinct and, you know, that people don't think about anymore. That's just too bad. It's, it's, still, a, it's still such a young art, though, you know? It's I true. mean, it's still a young art, and some of the things that we feel like we've lost maybe are just sort of in a clutch right now, and we haven't lost it. Yeah, you may be right. You know, I mean, like, it's hard to look at things uh, on a greater scale than you know, our own lifetime, and, and there's been a lot of changes in our lifetimes, but to look at it from the its inception to now, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, and from its inception to, you know, 200 years, I mean, you know, who knows? It, there could be a lot of stuff that happens in that time. It's hard to say. Yeah, and look, look at uh, painting and, and, and visual art, you know, look what it went through, uh, and then there was the Renaissance and everything was better than it had ever been before. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I think you're right. We'll and it's a very hopeful, yeah. positive attitude. I agree. That's good. Um, okay, what's your favorite uh, made-for-TV movie? I happen to really love a lot of 70s made-for-TV movies. I really I. do. I'm with you. Um, and I, I think uh, 
you know, Dan Curtis was doing really exceptionally fine work and working with really good writers, obviously, like Richard Matheson. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, I, I like a lot of the Dan Curtis stuff. I really love Norlis tapes. That's great. Um, uh, I, I, I love Dan Curtis's Dracula with Jack Palance. I like it a lot. I think it's really good. I think yeah. Jack Palance is great yes. as Dracula. Um, uh, there's one called Reflections of Murder. Uh, John Badham directed it. Oh, shit. That's what I haven't seen, but I know that one. It's yeah, it's a remake of uh, Diabolique. Oh, and nice! Got Tuesday Welds in it, oh. <laughs> and which is always a nice thing. Tuesday Welds in a lot of TV movies. Uh, Sam Waterston is in it, playing the you know the, the boorish bad husband, and Sam Waterston is a total dick, and he's great. Oh. Um, and then Joan Hackett is the other principal, but uh, yeah, it's a Tuesday Weld. Just having an opportunity to see Tuesday Weld work is great, and. Uh, a lot of those TV movies, I think, were, were kind of like the equivalent of what B films had been, and obviously that started out John Badham as director. Um, I really like uh, Bad Ronald is a great TV movie yes, that yes. I like a lot. Uh, yeah, it, I feel a lot of ways about a lot of the TV. Oh, uh, Ferdinand's. Oh, uh, Leslie Stevens with uh, 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 David Jansen. Oh, have you ever seen that? No, no, no. What is that one? I don't know that one. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> that's that's the one. Uh, it's, it takes place on a submarine. And, uh, like, a guy, it was actually, the guy who played Herb Tarlick, was his name, William Bonner, was that his name? I think so. He played Herb Tarlick on WKRP, plays this young sailor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who brings in, who's, like, they're, they're in Peru, and he buys, like, these poisonous baby snakes to, like, play a gag on his, on the skipper or whatever. <laughs> it's like, the poison, all these poisonous snakes escape onto the submarine, and they, you know, of course, they... They bite the captain and like the like the whole this shit hits the fan like in a huge way. And then there's like whole parts of the you know because like a, some engineer got bitten and the whole like most of the sub is flooded, most of the crew dies, and so like the only guy who's left like in the chain of command to be in charge is like this you know young like 25 year old captain and then the master of the boat which is i guess in the navy like you've got you've always got like this old salt who's like, who like, knows how to do everything knows how to you know descale the boiler knows how to do everything <laughs> that you need to do on the boat and he's the master of the boat so that guy is played by uh, david jansen nice and so dave so the young captain is just kind of defers to david jansen and says hey you know what to do here and so david jansen's like this old crusty like sergeant rock type world war ii veteran who has no place in like the new modern world of like the early 70s and he's, he's just this, this old salt and he's like the first thing he does is break out the bourbon you know <laughs> because like there's the, the, the whole the whole submarine is, is freezing cold he's like well issue some bourbon just some blankets and it's David Jansen's got this great voice like he's been gargling razor blades <laughs> and he's so good David Jansen is, this movie made me a huge David Jansen fan but he's just so good in this movie just playing this like old dude who's out of his time he's out of his place his day has passed but he's the only guy <laughs> who's got that fucking World War II nutsack that he lets hang and gets shit done this movie this movie's so good I haven't thought about this movie in a while oh man it's really so good it's, um, so it's David Jansen's in it uh, Ivan Dixon uh, plays like the uh, like his second uh, in command as an engineer or whatever it's great oh I'm tracking you, that you gotta check that movie out it no, is so I'm, good trust me that might be my favorite TV movie yeah. that's, that's a, that is a great pick and I'm so gonna find that as soon as possible that sounds fantastic and that was, uh, it, was written, it was written and directed by Leslie Stevens who uh, created The Outer Limits 
Oh fuck, dude. Oh man, it's, right. a, it's great. It's wow. great. See, that's another thing. That uh, I... so, yeah. And... Sorry. So of course the Dan Curtis movies and and Ferdinand. <laughs> <laughs> I just that's one thing that's so neat about that era when we had so many talented people working. Like you say, maybe it was certain types of movies became the TV the, the TV movies became what exploitation movies were or whatever. But nonetheless, we still had very talented people working on in television and on television movies. And there's so much great stuff there. It's just, and it's red, it's not that readily available, which is really kind of sad. Yeah, and, and there, it, it really was like uh, uh, exploitation movies. And there was a lot of crossover. A lot of the same people were working. It would be the same kind of budget class, basically. And, you know, even Jerry Gross made a TV movie. So, you know, there was, they were, there were some of the same people that were working in the same, in the same uh, there's some crossover there between the two. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I, that's a great one. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call the gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.